Hi, I'm Adam Day from UN University's Center for Policy Research in New York. This is Hybrid Wars, a show about how violent conflict around the world is becoming deadlier and more difficult to resolve than ever before. If you haven't tuned in to the first two episodes, you might want to check those out. But if you just want to stay with us now, welcome. Today's show is about Somalia, a country that many of us associate with piracy, famine, and violence. This week, Augustine Mahiga, the UN's top envoy for Somalia, warned that more international peacekeepers are needed in the war-ravished country because of the growing threat from insurgent groups. He also told the Security Council that he's concerned by the deteriorating security situation in Somalia and its potential impact on the entire region. I request to encourage the Council to remain engaged in a cease with situation in Somalia which, unlike many African conflicts, has multiple threats to international peace security. A protracted civil war, international terrorism, internal international piracy, and international trafficking. Experience in Somalia has shown that the more delayed or inadequate the response is, the more complex the crisis becomes. Somalia uh, is a country that um, I have uh, a lot of passion for, uh, uh, into your blood and under your skin. It's a very unfortunate place, a place of extraordinary suffering. Uh, but it's also a place of extraordinary resilience, one of the poorest countries in the world with the worst um, human uh, development index, uh, perhaps the worst, um, and also a country that has been continually uh, caught up in one form of fighting or another for the past 30 years. And militia groups have been a uh, center feature of that warfare. Uh, during the 1990s, uh, militia groups associated with warlords as well as with particular clans uh, were some of the principal reasons uh, why and how the civil war um, started and became very vicious and escalated. That's Vanda Felbab brown one of our expert researchers. I am Vanda Felbab brown senior fellow at the Brookings Institution in Washington, D.C., where I direct Brookings' work on subnational threats and transnational networks, which is a rubric that covers all kinds of crimes um, and all kinds of sins. Vanda has spent a lot of time in Somalia, going places where very few people from outside the region go, meeting with dozens of armed groups and militias around the country. One of the armed groups she's most interested in is Al-Shabaab, which emerged as a radical youth wing of the Islamic courts that controlled Mogadishu in 2006. Al-Shabaab advocates a Wahhabi version of Islam, a strict form of Sharia law that includes stoning women accused of adultery and amputating the hands of thieves. It's listed as a terrorist group and may have links to other terrorist groups like Boko Haram in Nigeria. In 2009, Al-Shabaab took over a lot of southern Somalia, occupying huge territories and ruling them with brutality and repression. It has regularly carried out bombing attacks in Mogadishu and has also staged attacks in Kenya. Kenya continues to mourn the deaths of at least 148 people, mostly Christian students, killed last week during an attack at the Garissa University College. Kenyan fighter jets have carried out retaliatory cross-border bombing raids into Somalia, home base of al-Shabaab, the militant group responsible for the Garissa massacre. 
And I've really been struck uh, just on my latest trip for uh, that I was doing field work for our study on militias, how much strengthened uh, al-Shabaab has become. And now why is that? What accounts for the fact that you have this very brutal um, actor that nonetheless manages to stay so potent despite massive international efforts to get rid of al-Shabaab and despite the brutality that it imposes on local populations? Well, there are many factors. The core one is, of course, the, the weakness and rapaciousness and predatory character of official Somali forces. Uh, the official Somali army is still uh, very weak, and it's essentially a conglomeration of militias that often act as very parochial uh, and sometimes very rapacious predatory militias. Um, state institutions often are corrupt and do not work well. And so Shabab, despite his brutality, manages to enforce order and manages to deliver at least some aspects uh, of uh, public life that are necessary for, for everyday survival. So systematically, Al-Shabaab, uh, shocking as that is, manages to outcompete uh, state institutions in providing better order and in providing better, more accessible justice. Now, the bar is very low, but it's effective in, in enforcing order and enforcing justice. It does so much better than the plethora of militia groups that exist in Somalia and the state uh, security forces that have emerged out of uh, the militia groups. Al-Shabaab isn't just outperforming the government in many areas. It's also managing to survive in the face of a huge international effort to get rid of them. The African Union has deployed 20,000 soldiers to fight al-Shabaab, driving the group out of Mogadishu and losing thousands of lives in the process. The U.S. regularly conducts airstrikes on al-Shabaab positions to weaken them, and international donors have put a billion dollars into building the Somali police and army. This has helped drive al-Shabaab into a smaller set of territories, but it certainly hasn't finished off the group. So, just like we saw in Nigeria in the last episode, the Somali government has turned to militias to help the fight against Shabaab. But why use militias at all, given how much other support Somalia is getting from African troops and others? So, first of all, they're used to them. They are the actor that's available. Uh, Somalia's government does not control large parts of the territory. And there are very large parts of the country where no official police forces or um, security forces are present. Uh, actors advocate for them also because the Somali uh, forces have performed so dismally. They are extraordinarily weak. They, uh, they have very limited morale. They, can, they cannot even perform defensive operations. If they set up a, a camp, a checkpoint, they are very easily overrun by Shabaab. And to the extent that they are not overrun, it's only because they often pay Shabaab protection, extortion money. So people will say uh, the militias have many advantages. So goes the claim. Uh, they are local, so they will understand local terrain. They will have great local intelligence. They are local, so they will not be predatory to local communities. So goes the claim. Uh, and they will have greater verbiage and motivation, greater morale uh, to fight al-Shabaab than um, the Somali official formal forces. And people also make the argument that they can be cheaper uh, than uh, Somali national security forces. One of the most important groups that is helping the Somali government fight al-Shabaab is called the Darwish. 
that there is one special category of the militias uh, that's called uh, Darwish. They are paramilitary forces that operate at the level of federal member states. They are not officially part of the, the security architecture. Uh, there might be perhaps 20,000 uh, of them. Uh, the numbers are uh, highly varied. There is really no systematic counting uh, uh, or systematic disclosure of the size of the militias, but perhaps there are 60,000 militiamen in Somalia, and easily more. Really, the only economy is selling protection, selling one's um, uh, arms. It's the majority of the economic activity in the country beyond <coughs> trading goods. So um, you have these, these state-level militia forces that uh, are not officially allowed to exist, uh, but uh, could become uh, enrolled either into national Somali forces or can be labeled as special police, in which case they are not explicitly uh, allowed uh, by the Somali constitution or the architecture, but they are also not explicitly prohibited unlike uh, when they are called, um, uh, when they are called uh, militias or paramilitary forces. These forces are not just fighting al-Shabaab. Some militias are policing communities, providing services, and acting like local government in many cases. And because they're operating where the government is weak, the groups have plenty of opportunity to cause harm as well. So not every militia is uh, potent. Not every militia is motivated. Uh, there are very many types of militias in Somalia, and very many are um, militia groups um, essentially for hire. Whoever pays them more will be uh, the temporary lord. Uh, to assume that they will have greater loyalties uh, is a very um, audacious um, assumption. Some of them uh, might be restrained in how they engage in predation on local community, but to the extent that local communities are not homogenous, uh, militias can be very predatory to minority clans, to neighboring communities. In fact, the militias are a very important source of severe human rights abuses, and, they, and particularly when they are organized along clan lines or particular, along particular commanders, the level of predation, involvement, and criminality tends to be very high. Islamic militia fighters who have been battling rival warlords in Somalia's capital since Wednesday have agreed a ceasefire. Around 70 people have died and 200 have been injured during four days of fighting in the northern part of Mogadishu. Somalia has been without an effective central government for 15 years and has been divided by rival warlords. It is also um, augmented by the fact that most militias in Somalia uh, uh, do not have any kind of official um, uh, or even unofficial uh, payments. So they will only be paid if they are lucky to be labeled as so-called Darwish, paramilitary forces belonging to sub-federal states, and if those states uh, have money. So that means that the states have to have some taxable assets, principally a port. There are really only two of those states, Puntland and uh, Jubaland, that has access to these kind of resources. So the vast majority of militias have no, no official payroll. They have no official money. Well, they need to feed their families. What are they going to do? They will start extorting local communities or neighboring communities. They become involved in all kinds of um, predatory criminality. Um, they're also very easily appropriated by powerful men, even though uh, today no one calls uh, himself warlord anymore. 
uh, in Somalia as well as in other parts of the world. Uh, the former warlords uh, can be members of parliament now or can be uh, state-level politicians, but they are patrons of those militia groups and often use the militia groups uh, both as their Praetorian Guard, but also for suppression of um, opposition. These militias tend to go to the highest bidder to work for whoever is willing to put them on a payroll. This means they're only fighting against al-Shabaab when their paymasters say so. Other times, they might be pawns in a regional chess game. This is particularly true about uh, militia groups that are sponsored by United Arab Emirates, um, Ethiopia, or Kenya. Those countries have their own interests. Uh, one of the interests might be to suppress Shabab, but they have very many other interests. And they use militia groups to prosecute their interests. So the militia groups can act against the national security interest, against the sovereignty interest of um, Somalia. This points to an interesting question about accountability. With rampant human rights violations and predatory practices, how are these groups held to account by the government and international community that first supported their rise? Well, currently, there are essentially no accountability mechanisms in existence for paramilitary groups in Somalia and, frankly, for powerful actors in Somalia, period. Uh, nonetheless, we have seen most progress in better uh, improvement with Somali army, with official national Somali army and uh, official national Somali police, when the international community uh, delivered not only robust training to particular units, but was willing to say, we are cutting the unit off from money uh, if they uh, engage in rapes, um, killing of people at checkpoints, uh, brutality in IDP camps, uh, really sort of most egregious extrajudicial killings, torture and rape. I mean, this is the level, this is the bar, this is the level of violations we are talking about. So when the international community was willing to um, cut off support and insist on units being, or at least individuals being either dismantled or imprisoned, we have started seeing some progress. Now, the international community has not exercised the same level uh, of leverage and oversight over militias for a variety of factors, one of which is that the militias get no international money, at least uh, no official international money as part of the state building effort. Without any kind of serious oversight, Somalia's militias really face no accountability for their actions. They can pillage communities, and it's extremely unlikely they will face any repercussions from the state. In some cases, the violations have been so bad, communities have turned to al-Shabaab for protection. This is the irony of uncontrolled militias. They sometimes begin to cause exactly the problem they were formed to solve. One of the solutions that keeps being discussed is whether Somalia's militias, at least the less predatory ones, might be integrated into the Somali army and police. That would bring them under the chain of command of the state and maybe help solve the issue of accountability. Is that a possible solution? Well, there is no uniform approach as to what to do with the militia groups. And in fact, there is a really um, highly contested um, um, sense of how they should be, uh, how they should be treated. And, and the views are highly opposed. Uh, and this is true both about different members of the international community uh, between the federal uh, government and federal member states. So the federal government would like to see integration of the militias into Somali national institutions. Federal member states don't like that at all. 
um, they don't like it because um, they fear that um, uh, the federal the federal government will essentially usurp power and reverse uh, the evolution of power in the country. This gets into the complicated way Somalia is set up, kind of like the U.S., with federal states that are vying for control vis-a-vis the central government. Having a militia under your payroll is a great way to get leverage over Mogadishu. So if a militia suddenly gets turned into a unit of the army, the federal governors might lose an important force that was under their control. Occasionally, they do agree to integration. Uh, There have been some forces that have uh, integrated into the uh, national forces. Um, The officials currently in charge of those states at the state level need to be um, need to have friendly relations with whoever is the um, president in uh, Mogadishu. So in this case, Farmajo. So if Farmajo's friends and allies are in charge of the states, they're willing to talk about uh, some level of integration. The states uh, needed to be essentially poor and have no capacity to pay the militia. So if they don't have their own ports uh, or, or powerful uh, Uh, land entries to tax and support the militias, then they're willing to talk about integration. If they have enough money that they privately generate, if not necessarily legally, then uh, they are not interested in integration. So while there have been some examples of integration of these groups into federal forces, not all have been seamless for two main reasons. So we have seen several instances of units being integrated, a process that is important In each of these cases, unfortunately, the integration into the formal forces took place without any vetting um, of um, the uh, individuals and the units for any kind of even the most egregious human rights violations and potentially not even for any kind of conflicted loyalties to al-Shabaab. Already, Somali national forces, intelligence agencies, federal police, are deeply, deeply uh, infiltrated by al-Shabaab. So vetting is absolutely essential, but there is no transparency and likely close to no vetting takes place. And anyway, even if some vetting takes place, it's, it's, not, it's completely opaque. There is no transparency. And finally, uh, really very deleteriously, um, Mogadishu has at times refused to pay even the units that were integrated. Now, this has really been a critical state-building mistake, one that is easily redressed, um, but one that is fundamental. If units integrate and um, the state uh, refuses to pay, then um, uh, no a unit will have an incentive to integrate. And in fact, when they have not been paid, we've seen uh, states in the Putland, uh, Galmaduk and Juba recalling the units that they were hated as as national units, recalling them and saying you are no longer national unit, you are back to our state local units. So the short story is that integration isn't really working as a short-term solution to the bulk of Somalia's militias. Either the power brokers in the country don't want them to be integrated, or the integration is not something that is going to solve the problems the militias cause. And don't forget, these groups are the ones that are on the front lines fighting against al-Shabaab, so they aren't something that can just disappear. But one of Vanda's most important points has to do with the risks these militias cause to Somalia's stability in the broader region. One of the fascinating things uh, to watch in Somalia over the past five years has been um, its uh, 
rise as a center of uh, geopolitical rivalries. That is deeply destabilizing for a country that's already enormously destabilized. And a lot of it has to do with the Cold War between um, Qatar on the one hand and uh, Saudi Arabia and, and um, United Arab Emirates uh, on the other hand, with Qatar being um, in Somalia quite closely aligned with Turkey as well. The larger actors from uh, the more the powerful actors from uh, the Middle East, like UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar, uh, have a variety of interests uh, in Somalia, including access to ports. Particularly when UAE was involved in, uh, intensely in the war in Yemen, it uh, deemed ports. Uh, uh, along uh, the Horn of Africa is vital for access to Yemen. And it still today believes that free entry, uh, free uh, passage, uh, um, uh, free uh, maritime passage, both for its merchant vessels and, and trade in general, as well as for its military forces through that area is fundamental. So UAE has sought to build up um, uh, ports like uh, in um, Djibouti, but also increasingly in Somalia, in Bosaso, and in, which is in the state of Butland, and in uh, Berbera, which is in the state of Somaliland. But now that uh, UAE and Saudi Arabia continue to be uh, caught up still in this uh, tiff between cousins uh, in Qatar, a tiff that has terrible uh, uh, consequences for the lives of people in the broader Middle East, Qatar has uh, tried to cultivate its own rival port in Hobayo, in Somalia. So uh, all these regional actors and actors from the Middle East are cultivating their own proxy forces, local actors, local militia groups, to challenge each other. Uh, some of these forces, like some of the militias belonging to Qatar and some of, or, or sponsored by Qatar, and some of the militias sponsored by UAE are actively fighting each other in um, in um, Puntland. Uh, in other cases, uh, the groups uh, might be courted by external actors. This is one of the most important downsides of militias in the Somalia context. They are a conduit for foreign countries to meddle in the conflicts inside Somalia. It's as if foreign powers think that Somalia is a safe place for the big powers to fight. The human cost is enormous, as tens of thousands of people have died in the fighting in the past decade. It's beginning to get worse again, as all the gains of 2015 appear to be slipping away. 11 people were killed by a bombing in a crowded market in the city of Baidoa, west of the Somali capital, Mogadishu. It is considered the worst attack of its kind since Somali forces, backed by Ethiopia, took control of the city two months ago. One crisis after the next, the Somali people's suffering continues in the midst of an array of armed factions as more than 10 people were killed after a bomb detonated in a bustling market in the city of Baidoa. Eyewitnesses confirmed the bomb exploded after soldiers from the Somali government forces entered the market. However, most of those killed are women and children. In Baidoa, which is the capital of the southwest, often seen as know, the safest place, the place I was able to go, uh, both the Somali national government and the um, international forces uh, really have access to tiny percentage of the population and tiny amount of physical territory. 
just as I was there, mortar attacks were taking place, routine um, um, tactic by Shabab to squeeze money out of everyone, including um, Amisom. And sadly, um, I uh, had several friends, uh, prominent families that have dedicated uh, their, their lives to um, making Somalia a better place, who have lost in the past several months their children to either assassinations, perhaps by rival politicians, rival business groups, or in some cases, Al-Shabaab bombs. So there was the, the human uh, personal dimension for me as well that was very distressing to see. And... Um, uh, also, the whole mood in the country really was just down. So, you know, I remember when I was in Somalia in 2015, um, 2016, there was just this tremendous sense of optimism that the country was, was turning around, that things were going to be better, that there was just tremendous hope and enthusiasm. And that that's quite dissipated now. It's, it's just sense of one dimension after another is really struggling, whether it's the political processes, processes, poor, continually poor governance and significant um, decline in security. So it was uh, really distressing both with the larger, watching the larger trends as well as on the personal uh, human dimension. We often think of uh, Iraq and Lebanon as uh, the, uh, and perhaps Afghanistan, as the archetypal places where uh, proxy wars are um, uh, played out, Syria, another prominent example, and few pay attention to uh, the um, extent to which the, the proxy rivalries, uh, geopolitical rivalries are playing out through proxy wars and, and militias in Somalia. Is Somalia the next Afghanistan? The current situation in Somalia is eerily similar to Afghanistan in the 1990s, which was in total disarray with no central government or functioning economy. Warlords battled freely over territorial pockets and small weapons were plentiful. It seems that Somalia's militias might have played an important role in fighting Shabab, but the cost is huge. And without any easy way to bring them into the national army, the solution is either to try to demobilize them, disarm them, and reintegrate them back into their communities, what Vanda calls DDR, or just accept them as part of life in Somalia? Well, you know, unfortunately, there is really no way to get away from working with militias, let alone getting to some large-scale uh, DDR of militias. Nonetheless, unless both of these elements eventually take place, whether this eventually is five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, we will be perpetually having the very same conversation uh, about Somalia, the uh, very same distressing conversation, even if the names of the actors are changing to some extent. And eventually down the road, we need to start thinking about what kind of training, jobs, opportunity there will be uh, available to them. That's a massive, massive undertaking. Uh, not everyone is going to be willing to be a barber, shoemaker, uh, or taxi driver, which is essentially what the job creation efforts for anyone and everyone, whether Shabab defectors, militias, or anyone else um, consist of. If paramilitaries are seen as being necessary in Somalia, what can be done to minimize the risks that they might cause? The mitigating processes and the mitigating policies needs to be put in place to um, um, minimize the, the worst element of militias. 
Uh, that includes vetting the militias, not just working with anyone, and holding militias accountable for at least the most egregious um, theft of land, clan predatory dynamics, um, torture, extrajudicial killings, and rape. Units that behave this way and individuals that behave this way need to be cut off from payroll, and to the extent that there is some actor that can arrest them, uh, that should take place. I, I say that reluctantly because in large of these, uh, or I say that carefully because in many of these territories, there is no armed actor that can arrest them. But at least to the extent that they are getting funding uh, from either the Somali federal government, Somali states, or international actors, the funding needs to um, uh, be cut if they behave uh, this way. I also believe that they should be uh, given human rights training um, even if that doesn't immediately produce a change in their behavior, at least it removes the claim that they don't know that they're violating any kind of behavior, any kind of legal, uh, international or domestic um, regulations and uh, obligations. So at minimum, uh, we need to put these mitigation uh, processes in place. But finally, I would say that... Um, what uh, is some of the uh, most important and most neglected element of both the anti-Shabaab struggle and thinking about what to do with militia is how to resolve local conflicts. Putting serious effort into local conflict uh, resolution, mitigation, mediation, both by the federal uh, government, by member states and by the international community uh, is a long, winding, perhaps tortuous process but in the end of the day, it might be um, the most useful process in uh, bringing greater peace, less violence and more stability uh, to the country. I was struck by a very pithy comment uh, by a UN official uh, who said, uh, in Somalia, we have uh, uh, tried to reduce violence, reduce killing without ever addressing the conflict that underlies it. And maybe that's the biggest lesson when you strip everything else away. Militias might help win the battle against a group like Al-Shabaab, but the war, that longer process of Somali people may be beginning to trust their government, that's something the militias don't help at all. They might even be making things worse. This has been Hybrid Wars, a podcast that tries to understand why today's wars keep dragging on without end. Thanks to Vanda Felbad-Brown for her incredibly difficult and dangerous fieldwork. And I hope to see you all next week when we start looking at Iraq. There's two sets of conflicts, I think. One is an international conflict being played out in Iraq, on Iraqi soil. And the other is a internal uh, squabble, internal contestation over political narrative and over political spoils. This is a United Nations University Center for Policy Research podcast recording. The views expressed are those of the speakers.